Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. What a summer for the national park system. Still rebounding from COVID shutdowns in 2020, the parks are now dealing with record crowds and reduced staffs, wildfires, drought, and severe reductions in lake water levels, all while COVID spikes again across the country. This is Lynn Riddick for National Parks Traveler. This week, the traveler delves into some of these issues, none of them easy to solve. Founder and Editor-in-Chief Kurt Repinchek is here from Park City, Utah, along with Contributing Editor Kim O'Connell from Arlington, Virginia, with thoughts and insights. Hi, Kurt. Hi, Kim. Hello. Hi, Lynn. Great to have you guys together. Well, let's start off with some big news. A new director of the National Park Service has been nominated, Charles Sams III. Kurt, what can you tell us about him? Boy, you know, um, I really had never heard of him until he was nominated the other day by uh, the Biden administration. He is a Native American, um, member of the Cayuse and Walla Walla of the Confederated Tribes of the Umatilla Indian Reservation in um, Washington and Oregon. He does have a rather deep background in um, natural resource and conservation management fields, um, more than 25 years. I think it's an interesting choice. It could be a bold choice. I mean, obviously, um, there's been a lot of calls for bringing some outside blood, as it were, into the Park Service and and get away from um, repeatedly dipping into the ranks of the the Park Service for the next director. I think this will be an interesting uh, nomination to follow and and see what uh, questions the senators have for him when they get around to a confirmation hearing. Yeah, it's been a long time coming for a National Parks chief since 2017. Is that correct? Yeah. You know, um, Jonathan Jarvis, who was the uh, Park Service director during the Obama administration, retired early in um, January of 2017. And um, later that year, President Trump did nominate um, someone to be Park Service Director, David Vela, who at the time was the superintendent of Grand Teton National Park. And while uh, Vela did have a a confirmation hearing before a Senate committee, his nomination never reached the floor of the full Senate. And um, when Congress turned over, um, that nomination vanished, and uh, the Trump administration never nominated, um, renominated Vela or nominate another individual to be Park Service Director, instead using a series of acting directors to fill the job, which um, drew a lot of criticism from park advocacy groups. Um, and I can see, you know, their, their concern was um, it would be best to have a Senate-confirmed director who basically would be empowered by having gone through the confirmation process to, to really take hold of the agency and... Um, directed as he or she thought was best. What do you think his first order of business will be uh, once he secures the confirmation? Boy, that's, um, (laughs) there are so many issues out there across the park system. You know, obviously we're dealing with uh, overcrowding situations in some places. There's also the the matter of how to spend the um, Great American Outdoors Act um, monies that have come to the park service roughly uh, $1.5 billion, and decisions have to be made on exactly which projects get uh, priority. And so that will be something certainly for um, the next director, if it is Sam's, um, to to take hold of. 
So do you know if that pool of money from the Great American Outdoors Act is just sitting there? Has any of it been dispersed? And what likely is the director um, you know, able to do with that as far as getting funds out immediately? You know, some of that has been dispersed. I mean, it hasn't just been sitting there waiting for the uh, director to be nominated. Um, the Interior Department has been working with the Park Service staff to um, decide where best to fund it. Um, I believe some of it is uh, going to Yellowstone National Park, which has some pretty crucial needs in terms of bridges that are in dilapidated condition and uh, need to be replaced. So um, decisions are being made, but you know this is a, a five-year um, program of dispersing roughly one and a half billion dollars each year, and um, there are a lot of lot of needs across the park system. And uh, it'll be interesting to see if um, there's a division between the haves and the have-nots. I mean. It seems like the big parks, the Yellowstones, the Yosemites, the Grand Canyons always seem to get the money that they need. And there are smaller park system units that um, don't always get what they need. And it's a, it's a dilemma. And so that's uh, hopefully one thing that the next director will be able to, to address is balancing out the equity across the system. So what is the initial reaction? Uh, what's the word on the street? Anything that you've been hearing? It's been very, very positive so far. Um, one of the first to um, comment on his uh, nomination was the um, president of the Trust for Public Land, Diane Regis. Um, she called Sam's a visionary conservation leader and the deeply demonstrated commitment to natural and cultural resources, which is interesting. At the National Parks Conservation Association, President and CEO Teresa Perno said that Throughout his career, Sam's has formed powerful relationships across tribal nations, all levels of government, and the conservation community, navigating difficult issues in an inclusive and caring way. Um, that's good to hear from NPCA. And then more praise came from Mountain Pack. That's a coalition of locally elected officials in more than 80 Western mountain communities from Aspen, Colorado to Hood River, Oregon. That's quite an expanse in the West. And they were very positive of the nomination. Um, Executive Director Anna Peterson noted not only that hasn't the Park Service had a permanent director since John Jarvis left, but she said, and I'm quoting here, it's disgraceful that in over 105 years of Park Service history, it has yet to be led by a Native American. I I think that's going to be a point that many people raise and and point to. And um, I think some people will really, really be thrilled to see that uh, Native American presence. Yeah, and I think it's interesting to note that he currently lives on an Indian reservation with his wife and four kids. Any obstacles to his confirmation do you anticipate? You know, I I think the only um, possible um, impediment would be how quickly the Senate can get to this. Um, I think they come back into session after Labor Day. And of course, uh, there's the ongoing need to address the, um, the infrastructure legislation, which is in the House of uh, Representatives, as well as the uh, um, reconciliation budget bill, um, which I think is also in the House. And those are two huge cantankerous measures that um, certainly are going to occupy Congress going forward because the uh, federal fiscal year ends at the end of September. And um, unless there's a funding bill in place or a continuing resolution in place, Government's going to come to a halt on October 1st, and so that possibly could um, deflect the Senate's attention from confirmation hearings. I don't know. We'll have to just keep an eye on the the schedule of the uh, Senate uh, Energy and Natural Resource Committee. Is there uh, anything that the Secretary of the Interior can do to sort of 
keep this issue on the table so that it doesn't get brushed aside? Boy, you know, I, I really don't think Secretary Hallen has that much power to tell the Senate how to conduct its business or when to hold hearings. Certainly she can talk to the senators and, uh, and voice her support for, for Mr. Sams, but um, Congress, as we, we know from watching it over the years, uh, moves at its own pace. I want to talk a little bit about record-breaking crowds in the parks this summer. Kurt, I know you've been in a few parks this summer. You're getting ready to go to Yosemite. And Kim, you're getting ready to go to Shenandoah National Park. I've been to a few. So let's talk about some of the crowds. Um, What are some of the most crowded parks this summer that we're seeing? What are some of the visitation numbers like compared to previous summers? And what have you guys personally seen? Well, Kim, I think you were just up in Acadia and had a wonderful experience. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I just got back a couple weeks ago from Acadia National Park, one of my favorite parks um, anywhere in the system, but on the East Coast. And I knew it was getting more crowded in Acadia, and I've experienced that myself in the past. But it was, I thought, pretty exceptionally crowded in the most popular areas, such as Jordan Pond House and the visitor center area, and the road to Cadillac Mountain. And as you may have heard, uh, the park did institute a new reservation system for the road to Cadillac. So there are new like ranger stations at the road to Cadillac, which, you know, is a new thing for the park and seemed to be working well, but we didn't even try because we know it's hard to get a reservation to get up, up onto Cadillac. But we did try to go to the Jordan Pond House, which, if you know Acadia, is a beautiful historic place that overlooks the beautiful Jordan Pond and these sort of uh, rock mountain formations in the distance called the Bubbles. And we couldn't even get into the parking lot. It was so crowded there and so many people pouring on off and on the shuttle buses there. So many people in the parking lot that we just kind of gave up and kept driving. I feel confident that in the backcountry of Acadia, you can find as much solitude as you ever could. But in the main areas of the park, it was quite crowded. So, Kurt, what have you seen out there and what have you heard about as far as overcrowded parks? Which are the worst? You know, Lynn, it's, it's, it's kind of a mixed situation out there across the parks, across the park system. You know, I went down to... Um, Glen Canyon National Recreation Area back in May with a buddy. We went kayaking for four days on um, Lake Powell, and we went in from the, the Bullfrog Marina. We arrived late in the afternoon, probably four or five o'clock, and there's a, a campground right there at the, the marina, and we had no problem getting a campsite. You go across the country to, to Cape Hatteras um, National Seashore and Fort Raleigh National Historic Site and Wright Brothers National Memorial. This is amazing. Through the first six months of the year, they experienced some of the highest levels of visitation ever recorded at those units. Through June, visitation to Cape Hatteras was up 26% higher than the first six months of 2002. And that's the year that currently holds the distinction as being the busiest year on record at that national seashore. Grand Teton National Park has been crowded. Yellowstone keeps um, setting new new visitation records, it seems. And I yeah, think Zion got, is a, another one that's just bursting at the seams. Zion always is crowded. And, you know, talking about um, ways to mitigate this, um, Zion is one of the national parks that uh, most recently has discussed uh, the need for a reservation system for um, areas of the park. And you're, you're seeing... At Rocky Mountain National Park and at Yosemite National Park, which you visited last year, you know they had put in um, timed reservation systems ostensibly to 
spread out the crowds because of COVID. And they both continued those reservation systems this year, timed reservation systems. And Rocky Mountain National Park currently is going through the process of looking at the big picture beyond COVID and how to manage visitors down the road because they have gotten a lot of complaints from longtime visitors about how congested the park is and, and how it's not a wonderful experience anymore. Kim, I know Shenandoah, it seems like every day this summer, you know, early and earlier, we're seeing, you know, this campground is full, that campground is full. They're, they're filling up, it seems to me, earlier than usual. I mean, do you have a sense on that? Yeah, I think so too. I think everybody is in their cars this year in particular because of the pandemic and kind of the lingering pandemic. People don't want to get on planes like they used to. So especially in the crowded East Coast where you have a lot of you know, big cities, if you can get in a car and drive to a beautiful natural area like we can to Shenandoah within two hours, that's what you're going to do. You're going to get in the car and drive. You don't have to worry about getting on an airplane and flying to some place where COVID cases might be surging or something. So any place you can drive to is really overrun really quickly. Now, again, like you were saying, like some parks, some park areas are less crowded. You have to kind of go early, go late, nowhere to go. You can find solitude in these crowded national parks, but you have to work harder and not everybody has the means to do that. And so I can understand that, you know, park visitors are getting a little frustrated about about the conditions. Yeah, there was a a Senate subcommittee hearing um, in July about the crowded conditions in the national parks. And one of the things that came up was whether whether the Park Service... um, would get into the marketing job and they long haven't been a marketing agency. They've been a management agency. And um, so the suggestion came up um, that they really need to point people to some of the lesser known parks, point them away from, from the Yellowstones, Yosemites, um, Great Smoky Mountains, Acadias to, to some of the other jewels in the system. And I know um, interior f- officials tell me that that's what they're going to do. Um, we haven't seen anything yet. Um, it, it'll be interesting because even some of the lesser known parks are seeing higher numbers of visitation. I might add here that I was in Mammoth Cave, Kentucky last month, and uh, I didn't think the crowds were out of control at all. In fact, I don't feel it was crowded at all. Same thing when I visited Yosemite in April. Of course, you would expect you know fewer crowds while kids are still having school and folks aren't traveling for vacation as much. And you know, plus some of the roads are still closed that time of year. So yeah, there are places you can go where you can find a little more solitude and a few more spaces in the parking lot that that give us a little bit of hope about um, it not being quite as dire. But Kurt, I wanted to ask you about also talking a little bit about the reservation system, permit requirements, higher fees, Great Smoky Mountains National Park, looking at reservations to park there at the Laurel Falls Trailhead. Do you know much about that? Right. Um, They just announced this yesterday. Um, It's a very, very popular trailhead. If if readers want to get a sense for how popular, they should go to nationalparkstraveler.org and look up our story on that because uh, the the park did provide a a photograph of just how crowded it can be. And um, it's not just Laurel Falls. Um, also, Cades Cove is um, incredibly, there's a, incredibly crowded. There's an 11-mile loop road that goes through there, and it's, you know, bumper to bumper through the summer. The interesting thing about the, the Laurel Falls, it's, it's going to be a test um, pilot project um, a little bit later after Labor Day into, into October. 
there's only 14 parking spots there. And the plan is to charge $14 per parking spot, and you've got two hours to park and make the hike, which they say on average takes 90 minutes. And they're hoping to turn over the parking lot four times throughout the day. So I think that's 56 56 people a day will get to park there. I'm not sure about all the the, the logistics involved with this. It, I, I don't know. It just seems kind of kind of odd to me. I mean, fourteen dollars to park for for two hours. Um, I don't know. It, it seems kind of steep, especially for a park with no fee. Like you know, that's a park that has no entrance fee, so it's attractive to people who want a lower cost vacation and then have them come to one of the most popular trailheads and have to spend more money for a very truncated experience. I think that's going to be an interesting experiment for them. Well, it really is. And I, I think we're starting to see something. You know, everybody ballyhooed the, the Great American Outdoors Act when it was passed by Congress last year. And of course, that was um, to funnel billions of dollars into the National Park Service to help reduce the, the 12 to $13 billion worth of maintenance backlog across the system. And we're seeing evidence almost every week now that it's just not enough money because Shenandoah is proposing higher fees in part to pay for maintenance in the campgrounds and on the trails. Hovenweep and Natural Bridges National Monuments in Utah are doing the same thing. And they're not the only parks. Every time we see a new fee, we usually see the language, you know, to help pay for maintenance needs. And so as as wonderful as the, the Great American Outdoors Act is... I mean, it's much needed money. These reservation systems and higher fees underscore how much the national park system is in the hole and how much more money it needs to function on a what I would call a expectable basis. You know, one thing, 70 years ago, there was a lot of stories. The New York Times did a four-part series. Um, Wallace Stegner, the, the dean of uh, outdoor environmental writing, Bernard DeVoto, a columnist for Harper's Magazine, 70 years ago, they cited the lack of funding for national parks. And at the time, I think there was 28 national parks, maybe a few more. But, you know, DeVoto said, we must close the parks and fix them and clean up the the garbage and and address the maintenance. And, And Wallace Stegner's piece was actually in Sports Illustrated, that shows you, you know, the, the love for national parks, that it transcends the, the news and an environmental and crosses over into the sporting world. But 70 years we've been dealing with this problem, aside from a 10-year period between 55 and 66, when we saw the great infusion of money into the Mission 66 program. And I, I'm, I'm curious if, you know, should we just expect that, that parks will not be managed as America's best idea? And also, you don't want to price people out of the experience. $12 maybe turns into $15, maybe turns into $20. And at some point, it's unaffordable to people uh, when you factor in all the other expenses of taking a vacation. So there's that balance that's always an issue. And uh, your thoughts on that? Well, at Shenandoah and some of the proposed fees they just announced... In some cases, they want to double the fee to sleep on the ground <laughs> from $15 to $30 a night. I, I don't know. Um, there, there, there is the need for campground management and, and campground maintenance and whatnot. 
we often see is in the case with uh, natural bridges and, and Hovenweep that um, the Park Service doesn't want to undercut surrounding campgrounds. Um, I'm not sure what surrounding campgrounds they're talking about in southern Utah because it's a lot, a lot of BLM land where it's dispersed camping. You camp for free. So I'm not sure what they're talking about when they say they don't want to undercut the, the cost of other campgrounds. But you get to the point where it, you do nickel and dime things away. And, you know, at Yellowstone, it's a once-in-a-lifetime vacation for many people, once-in-a-lifetime experience. And so, you know, does an extra 5 or $10 to camp matter? No, not at all, because they're, they're spending thousands of dollars if they're crossing the country to make that experience happen. You know, back where Kim is in, in the mid-Atlantic, um, within driving distance of Shenandoah and Great Smoky Mountains, you've got huge populations. You know, Kim, you're a local. What, what do you think about some of these higher fees? I mean, that, and that's the issue, is you have these local populations surrounding national parks who look at the park as this is my national park and you're trying to price me out of it. Well, I think something has to give one way or another. Um, We don't want to raise fees, people say, but they also don't want to accept having a reservation system. You know, they want the freedom to go to the national parks whenever they want and for a reasonable cost. And I think it is a reasonable expectation to a certain extent, but I feel like something will have to give. Either we need to reduce the pressure on the parks so the there isn't such pressure for all these costs and maintenance, understanding that there's already a big backlog. So we need to reduce the number of people that are overcrowding these parks with a reservation system, or we need to raise the fees or both. But I think we, the American people will have to accept, like you said, a different national park system in some form or another. The, either it's going to be higher fees or it's going to be limited hours, or maybe the parks close for three months. I'm I'm just pulling ideas out of a hat because they need to recover from human beings. I don't know, but I think going forward in the 21st century, we're going to have a different national park system and people will have to understand that and accept that to a certain extent. Well, and I think it's going to have to happen soon. I mean, there's an interesting situation down in Moab, Utah, the gateway primarily to Arches National Park, but Canyonlands National Park is right across the street, so to speak. Um, just about every day this summer, you see the, the the tweet go out that, you know, we're closing the entrance because traffic is backed up at the entrance station and we're not letting any more people in the park. Um, a couple of years ago, the, the park at the time was proposing a timed entry reservation type system. And there was one economic analysis that said, well, geez, this is going to cost the, the gateway community of Moab $22 million economically. And so that proposal was immediately pulled off the board. More recently, the um, political leaders in Moab and, and Grand County, surrounding Grand County, have been almost begging the National Park Service, please put in a reservation system because we're getting all these people and we're getting backed up. And not only does it prevent people from going into Arches National Park, but it, it forces them onto surrounding lands, BLM lands. And so it's it's creating problems on those lands in terms of crowding and, and, and pollution, litter, whatever you want to call it. And for somebody who's driving across the country, I mean, gosh, you know, I hate to say it, I'm getting old. I liked I liked uh, spontaneity when I was growing up. I think we have to convince the traveling America public that we we just can't have that type of spontaneity anymore. You can't have um, somebody drive across the country and show up at at Arches National Park and be met with a closed sign. And so that's where a reservation system would provide a little bit more surety that you know I'm going to be at Arches on. 
September 1st, and I'll be able to get into the park. Kurt, I wanted to ask you more about Zion National Park because that's one park that seems to be more congested than so many others, and they're proposing a reservation system for Angels Landing with a lottery system uh, and also a reservation system at Lava Point Campground. Tell us a little bit more about those things. Zion has seen incredible crowds. I mean, I, I can't recall the percentage increase over the past four or five years, but it's somewhere upwards of 40, 40 to 60% increase in, in visitation. And Angel's Landing is, you know, an iconic part of Zion Canyon. And people want to climb to the top of Angel's Landing because I think because it scares the hell out of you. <laughs> it's a very precarious hike in places. And you have to know what you're doing. Uh, I mean, even though the the Park Service has chains that you can cling on to going up it, there are times when you've got people clinging to chains going up while you've got people clinging to the same chain going down. And so it creates a real safety issue. And from time to time, people fall off of Angel's Landing and um, they don't survive those falls. And so that's, you know, the park has been working on a, a visitor management plan, I think, going back at least to 2015. And I'm, I'm surprised it's taken them so long. Um, you know, one of the suggestions they had was like a reservation system to get into Zion Canyon, period. And then the other one was, we'll look at specific areas, whether it's Angel's Landing or the, the Temple of Sinawava, that we will require a reservation. And so right now they're, they're moving forward with the, um, the one for Angel's Landing, which, which certainly is the, the most needy of ones, I think, beyond the safety aspect of it. We've seen situations where people have waited four hours in line to start making that hike up to Angel's Landing. The, the Lava Point campground is kind of interesting. It is a, a backcountry primitive campground. There are six sites there, I think. There's no running water. There, there are pit toilets there, vault toilets there. Interesting that they would toss that into the reservation mix, but um, I, th- I think it's uh, the sign of things to come. I mean, and and really, you look across the national park system. I mean, you go to Yellowstone, you go to Great Smoky Mountains, you go to Shenandoah. Well, hold on on Shenandoah for a minute. If you go to Great Smoky Mountains, or you go to Yellowstone, you go to Grand Teton. There are backcountry reservation systems in place. They've been in place for years. And we've managed to live with them, and you just expect it, you know about it, and you plan accordingly for it. Shenandoah is just moving in that direction with a, a permit system proposed for their backcountry trail network. I just think it's, you know, something that we've got to accept and, and work with, and uh, the parks will be better for it, and I think your, your park experience will be better for it in the long run. Well, the permitting system has worked well on Half Dome in Yosemite, is that correct? I believe so, although I think there's still uh, concerns that people are gaming it. I mean, this is this is a, a long-standing problem with Recreation.gov, which is the main portal to make reservations. Every year, there are issues with Recreation.gov and complaints that it's not fair that people are gaming it. They're, they've figured out a way to reserve either the same site year after year after year or reserve a bunch of sites I'll give you a perfect example of what's wrong with recreation.gov, and I don't know how to how to fix it. I mean, here in, in the, the backwaters of, of Park City, Utah, we have one of the slowest internet systems <laughs> providers out there, and I just can't compete with somebody who's got like a T1 line going into their computer that can, in a fraction of a second, make that reservation request where it might take me 
20 or 30 seconds for it to go through the machinations. And so there's no way I can compete for some of those popular sites um, during the peak seasons. And so I'm sure I'm not alone in that across the country. Kurt, in your experience with um, working all things parks, do you feel like it's safe to say that the COVID crowds are forcing these lingering crowding issues to finally be resolved? Uh, Is that the trend now, do you think? Well, I think we've seen some signs for sure. Acadia was a little bit out in front. It's sad to see that Arches hasn't gotten its plan in place because, uh, as I mentioned, they did have a plan ready to go, and um, I think politics killed it. What makes Acadia more reasonable for a time reservation system where Arches is not, and the one thing that comes to mind is Utah's congressional delegation, which uh, Senator Mike Lee has gone on the record saying he does not want a reservation system for Zion National Park. Um, I'm not sure, I haven't heard yet what he thinks about the proposal for Angel's Landing, but um, we're seeing it in fits and starts, and I think it'll be interesting. This is where we need a National Park Service director, somebody to set the tone, to to point out across the park system that, yes, we need reservation systems, we need to manage it as best as possible. I mean, Yellowstone has crowds and... um, We've talked about this in the past that, you know, fortunately, I live within a, a half day or a day's travel to Yellowstone so I can get up there more than more than once in my lifetime. And so the crowds stand out to me, whereas somebody who comes in for once in a lifetime may not notice those crowds as much. But nonetheless, there are resource damages occurring in the parks because of this overcrowding. And, and so if you had a National Park Service director in a place I think they could push some of these plans through a lot more quickly than they're happening. Just this week, the National Park Service directed that all visitors, employees, and contractors entering park service buildings and in crowded areas of the park must wear a face mask, regardless of their vaccination status. So your comments about that? Well, I think this has been an ever-evolving pandemic, and, you know, it's been something that scientists and all of us have been sort of dealing with as information has come to light. And so the fact that it's an ever-evolving pandemic shouldn't be new to anyone. Cases are rising nationwide. Um, And I think there's always been a contingent of people that are willing to wear masks inside just to be safe and anyway. But we'll see how that goes over with the general public. I'm not sure. But I think especially for the people that have already been wearing masks and being careful, this is not going to feel like a big change. Um, I, I'm not sure how it's going to go over with everybody, though. It is really odd. And, and going back a year, as long as COVID's been around and, and we've been encouraged to wear masks, I just don't understand the the pushback to it, Lynn. Um, you know, we posted the story on our Facebook page the other day, and, and there were a few who, who said, no way, I'm not going to go there nobody should tell me I have to wear a face mask. And, and I don't understand that when there's a disease as deadly as COVID, especially the new Delta variant out there, um, why people would not want to wear a mask. I will say on my trail hikes in Yosemite in April, almost everybody I passed on the trail was wearing a mask. Of course, that was California, and California was uh, experiencing a very high level of covid And um, a lot of visitors that time of year, I believe, are probably Californians. But it was an observation I made. I saw a lot of people outdoors wearing masks. 
did you notice a lot of masks on the ground? I mean, I was um, I was looking at uh, Yellowstone's uh, Flickr page the other day, and they've actually got a collection of photographs of masks on the ground in thermal areas stacked up. Um, people apparently aren't too careful with their masks when they get outside and take them off. So it's another litter problem. I did notice masks. I also noticed a lot of orange peels. People seem to peel their orange and toss the peels on the ground. And, you know, in a few weeks, they will biodegrade. Meanwhile, the rest of us have to walk through all those orange peels. So, (laughs) you know, just to go back to the mask thing a little bit, um, at least where I am, my children are about to go back to school and they're going to be expected to wear their masks all day, every day in school, in person. And so there's huge contingents of people in the United States of America, mostly our kids who are used to wearing masks, who are dealing with it and dealing with it with pretty good natured way for the most part. So I feel like it's a small price to pay to wear a mask for the you know half hour, hour you'll be spending in a park visitor center. It's not that big a deal. As soon as you go out on the trail, you can be free and take your mask off. Don't throw it on the ground, but you know, there's plenty of places in the park where you don't have to wear a mask. So I feel like for everybody's safety, it's not a huge ask. And we'll continue our conversation after this short break. Nova Scotia, 8,000 miles of coastline dotted with colorful fishing villages, quaint coastal towns, and an abundance of scenic natural beauty. Home to two national parks, Cape Breton Highlands and Kajimakujik. Spend your nights under a canopy of twinkling stars. Spend your days exploring trails, beaches, historical waterways, and tons of cultural and recreational experiences. Visit novascotia.com today to start planning your natural getaway. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. Do you love one-click shopping? With our partner, Interior Federal Credit Union, you can earn rewards just by making online purchases. You're missing out on rewards points if you're not using their Visa credit and or debit card. By adding these cards to your online shopping cart with Amazon, Walmart, or other shopping retailers, you can earn a point for every dollar you spend. Binge watching a lot with streaming services like Netflix and Hulu? Use their card for recurring payments to earn points as well. Visit their website, interiorfcu.org, and read their blog for more details and how to apply. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It's an environmental learning center, training center, conference center, and leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the National Park System for decades to come. You can see their successes at gtnpf.org. I'm Lynn Riddick, and I'm back with Kurt Repencheck and Kim O'Connell. Let's talk about the massive Dixie Fire 
in California and its impact on Lassen Volcanic National Park. Kurt, what's happening there? Boy, it's it's just a a big nasty fire that um, it kind of reminds me going back to 1988 with the the wildfires that crossed Yellowstone National Park. It took a snowstorm in September to really put them out, get them under control, put them out. And I'm I'm fearing that um, we're going to see the same with Dixie. I mean, it's just growing in leaps and bounds. I think this past weekend it, it grew by a hundred thousand acres. It did enter Lassen Volcanic um, earlier this month, and um, basically nothing's standing in its way. It's almost reached the northern border of the park, and um, part of that is, you know, it's going through wilderness areas, and um, the fire managers, understandably, are really focusing their firefighting efforts on communities that are threatened by the fire, and so, you know, if a fire is burning in a wilderness, it doesn't gain the same attention as a fire burning next door to your uh, your community, and, and I appreciate that. And so we've seen this fire just roar north, south to north across Lassen, and um, they have um, put in some bulldozer lines on the northern boundary of the park with Lassen um, National Forest and hoping that will slow it down there. Um, one good bit of news is uh, there were a lot of concerns that the, the fire was going to engulf the um, Drake's Bad Guest Ranch in the uh, Warner Valley down near the southern border, southeastern border of Lassen. And um, apparently that was spared, although there was a historic um, fire lookout tower on Mount Harness, I believe, that the fire did um, claim, um, and as well as some private inholdings up by Juniper Lake, which is really unfortunate. It kind of harkens back um, a few years to when we saw those nasty wildfires in Glacier National Park that burned um, quite a few inholdings along Lake McDonald. We're just going to have to wait and see what type of damage it does elsewhere in the park. I know they were working around the, the cabins at Manzanita Lake to try and um, prepare them in case the fire moved that way. But um, it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be interesting to see what it looks like come uh, October, November. Is the park still open? No, no. They closed the, the park early in, in August. It just wasn't safe to have people in the backcountry with a, a fire of this magnitude and with this erratic behavior, you know, and I'm, I'm looking forward. I've got some interviews set up with some, you know, fire experts with the National Interagency Fire Center. And a lot of these fires, you hear these news reports are, are creating their own weather and their own erratic behavior and more intense burns. And, you know, um, I, I'm in Utah where the, the Parley's Canyon fire swept through um, the other weekend and then actually um as we record this um it's still only 40 percent contained and it's only it's less than 600 acres in size which kind of shows you some of the problems that they have battling these fires but um we had some uh, monsoonal moisture come through last night and the winds were just gusting incredibly and I, i i don't know if that's related to climate change like i said i'll be interested to hear what the the fire experts have to say about um some of these um really intense weather events that we're seeing, but it complicates things for the firefighters, no doubt. And, you know, talking to one of the Park Service um, spokesmen the other day for Lassen, this is an amazing statistic. Out of all the firefighters the federal government has across the country, one in four are battling the Dixie Fire in California. That's just amazing. Over 6,000. That is amazing. Talking more about the drought, the dramatic dropping of water levels in some of the national recreational areas in the West is pretty alarming. 
what's the story at Lake Mead, Lake Powell and Glen Canyon, Bighorn Canyon National Recreational Areas? It's it's very alarming, Lynn. Um, Lake Mead, the last time Lake Mead was this low was when they were filling it. It has never been this low. Lake Powell is heading in that direction. The U.S. Bureau of Reclamation has has put in the first water call, I believe, and that's going to mean reduced um, water for Arizona and Nevada, parts of Arizona and parts of Nevada next year. And um, unless we see a really, really heavy snowpack um, this coming winter, if we start off in the same place we're at now next year, you know, you're going to see more intense pressure on water demands. You're going to see the possibility of Lakes Mead and Lake Powell getting below the level necessary to drive those hydropower generating stations in Hoover Dam and in Glen Canyon Dam. And what's that going to mean? How is that going to affect the the power web in the West? It's uh, not a good situation. Bighorn Canyon is is not quite as dire because I, I don't think it's got a hydroelectric generating station and uh, certainly it doesn't have the the vast um, population numbers that uh, are fed by the Colorado River drainage. But again, the Colorado River um, situation, um, they're going to release more water from Flaming Gorge upriver. They're going to release more water from the Blue Mesa Dam over in um, Curacante National Recreation Area, which just the other day pointed out that it's struggling with low levels and so it's going to change some of its marina operations because of the problems with getting boats in and boats out Um, and also the Navajo um, reservoir that is upstream of San Juan River all which feed down into the Colorado River and Lake Powell. Um, We'll see how much of a difference that can make. Um, The the numbers I saw earlier this summer didn't didn't seem terribly significant but um, I think it's going to be a a brand new world in terms of uh, irrigation and, and water use. And economically, places like Page, Arizona, which relies so much on recreation at Lake Powell, you know, this summer's drought, I think one hotel went out of business, declared bankruptcy because people weren't coming there. One houseboat operator had to cancel at least 400 houseboat reservations. Most of the most of the boat launches at Lake Powell are closed to motorized vessels. I mean, you can still carry your canoe or your kayak or your paddleboard down and get in without a problem. Um, I don't know. It's it's a it's a bleak situation, and and we're really gonna need some some creative minds to figure out how to get around this. Well, we'll continue to follow those issues for sure. You know, I had seen a lot of reports about boat launches being closed and boats being damaged because, uh, you know, propellers hitting the ground or boats getting stuck uh, in shallow waters. But sort of the water quality issues of these lakes and, you know, like you said, the hydroelectrical power issues are very, very disconcerting. They really are. They really are. And I think it was um, at Kiriconte where they've had some issues with, uh, I think, blue algae, which is uh, a toxic algae. I don't think we've seen it elsewhere in the, in the West, but um, certainly we've got a lot of other problems with invasive species, whether it's the, the quagga mussels inside um, Lake Powell and Lake Mead, which are causing problems, or uh, the, the Russian olive that are up the watersheds and forcing out the, the native vegetation. Um, gosh, this is really a gloomy conversation. <laughs> 
Well, then there's the story of the child that was bitten by a coyote at Cape Cod National Seashore. And you hate to hear these stories for so many reasons, the, the well-being of the child, the, the main one. Uh, talk a little bit about that, wildlife encroachment and our reaction to it. You know, gosh, I grew up on the East Coast and, and I've lived in the West a long time. <laughs> so I'm somewhat familiar with both both environments. And I don't know if um, East Coasters have less familiarity with wildlife and, and the problems they can pose. I know, I mean, you look at the, the great white sharks that are coming up along Cape Cod. I mean, that's a, a relatively newfound situation with climate change because um, a mix of climate change and the protection of the gray seals um, because the gray seal population has really rebounded and and they haul out at the the beaches along Cape Cod and of course the gray seals are prey for the great white sharks and so you're seeing a lot more great white sharks drawn to Cape Cod because of the increased um, seal populations. I think the same thing with with coyotes is I just think that they they've been encroaching across the east for I don't know maybe you have a, a better grasp for that Kim how many years they've been encroaching in but certainly we're seeing them more and more at Cape Cod I mean last year there was a situation where somebody was on the beach and they had a, a puppy with them and for some reason they didn't have the puppy on a leash and a, and a coyote got the puppy earlier this summer um, a woman had to fend off a coyote on one of the beaches with a stick. And now we've got a, a child being bitten by a coyote. And um, I don't know, tough situations. It's interesting because I don't like to think of it as wildlife encroachment. I think it's people encroachment. It, it goes back to these crowded national parks. It goes back to ever-expanding cities and urban areas. We are encroaching on areas of relief for wildlife. And I've seen that right here in Arlington. We're a close-in suburb of Washington, D.C. We had a black bear come into Arlington. Um, We're completely urbanized here. So a black bear sighting, I think it was just last year, was a shock. But these animals are running out of places to live, to shelter. It's related to all these other topics we're talking about. And so what can they do? They're trying to find natural areas to live and do the things that they do. And we are there. So it's creating a lot of conflict between wildlife and people. And I agree, we have more people in these areas who are less comfortable, less familiar with wild areas, wild animals, what to do. And so it's creating problems. But I sort of feel like the issue begins with us kind of encroaching into traditional wildlife areas. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, um, I've lived in in Utah for 27 years now. Um, <laughs> And in the, the subdivision that I live in, I mean, we used to see a lot of moose back in the, the 90s and the early 2000s um, coming through our backyards. And this was their habitat. And, and people would move in and they would call the, the Utah Department of Natural Resources or, or Wildlife Resources, get these moose out of here. They're a threat to our, na- our, our children. And it's like, well, why did you move up here in the first place? Because you wanted to be out in nature. You wanted to get away from the inner city. And yet some of these people want to force out the very things that we've come to appreciate and want to protect. Um, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know what the situation is. I'm uh, at a loss. It comes back to education, which comes back to funding, <laughs> which comes back to all, all the things that the National Park Service needs. I mean, we need to provide more education about wildlife for park visitors and what they should do if they encounter wildlife. I know that's a chronic issue out west in Yellowstone and other places, but definitely here in the East Coast as well. 
And that just goes back to resources and funding. The Park Service doesn't have enough and they need more of that. Well, you're absolutely right. And I also think it's an opportunity for the traveler to help fill that void. We've got a large audience. Um, Certainly we can try and be more um, attuned to to providing that education, whether it's in words or podcasts or um, I keep talking about webinars and and maybe this will get me off the dime and start doing um, regular webinars with the experts to, to understand what circumstances we're dealing with and how best we can live with these uh, other creatures on the earth. Now to end in a more positive light, so to speak, coincidentally happening as another annual August precedes meteor shower comes to an end. Glacier National Park in Montana and Waterton Lakes National Park in Alberta, Canada have been certified as dark sky parks from the International Dark Sky Association. Can you explain a little bit about what goes into that? Yeah, I mean it's a lot of uh, a lot of work, actually. Believe it or not, um, the, the parks have to uh, assess what their lighting situations are, where they um, have problems with light pollution, and um, address those things. Um, some years ago, um, I did some stories about that, and um, I can't remember the name of the, the company um, that they went to Zion National Park and they did a lot of studies in terms of light pollution and they made all these recommendations about, you know, here's the lights that you should be moving to both in, in wattage as well as, you know, make sure they're pointing down and not pointing up. And so these are the types of surveys that uh, these parks are doing and conducting and, you know, trying to really protect their night skies from light pollution. And um, I think it's a great a, a great situation that um, we're becoming more and more aware of of what people call the uh, the other half of the national park system, you know, that, that half that's above us. Absolutely. Right. And I wanted to add that the International Dark Sky Association has instituted a new labeling system beyond the dark sky parks that incorporates more urban areas. They've started a new category called an urban night sky place, which is to encourage places that already have a significant amount of light pollution and to an extent that maybe they can never be a truly dark sky. I'm talking about, you know, a park in a city park, you know, um, and then they're recognizing that when they make any efforts to reduce the impacts of lights and light pollution in their parks, even if there's already significant light pollution there. And so IDA is also trying to recognize those efforts outside of the truly dark sky parks, which I think is a great idea. You know, I think, you know, some people might shrug off, oh, you know, what's the big deal? A little light pollution, you know, the stars are still overhead. And if you have ever been in a truly dark place and looked up at the sky, it is just an amazing, amazing vista before your eyes that that plays out. When we were at Lake Powell, I mean, you know, you wake up in the middle of the night, there's no light pollution around and you just, it feels like you can reach up and grab the Milky Way and bring it down. It's so incredible. And for photographers, you know, you go to Yellowstone and you walk the um, the upper geyser basin after after the sun has set. And uh, if you know what you're doing with night sky photography, you can get some incredible photographs of uh, the Milky Way against the uh, Old Faithful geyser erupting. And, you know, there are so many spots across the national park system where you can get that same type of atmosphere of, of the other half of the the park system with the wonders here on ground. Well, Kurt and Kim, this has been a great discussion and thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and your insight. As always, National Parks Traveler continues to be the source of all things happening in the national parks, good, bad, or ugly. (laughs) 
Thanks so much for guiding us along the way, Lynn. Appreciate it, Lynn. Thank you. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. In between our weekly podcasts, keep up to date on news and features involving the National Park System by checking nationalparkstraveler.org. You can find stories there as varied as the threats Black Bears and Great Smoky Mountains National Park pose backcountry travelers to the art of making birch bark canoes. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Potrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experience in the parks and land space with a breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to potrerogroup.com. P-O-T-R-E-R-O group.com. Western National Parks Association is a nonprofit education partner of the National Park Service. WNPA supports parks across the West, developing products, services, and programs that enhance the visitor experience, understanding, and appreciation of national parks. Learn more at WNPA.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It's also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people, inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Parks Travelers podcast. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.